Everyone got it? Okay. So John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of uh, the spirit. Sorry, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the, de uh, in the desert, sorry, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I've been asked to point out that the outline for tonight's talk and actually the rest of the evening talks for our camp are on separate sheets. The first one looks like this. Okay. So do take that out of your folder and you're welcome to use that uh, to make notes as we work our way through these verses. Uh, it should say at the top, evening talk one, Jesus meets the religious and our reading John 3, 1 to 21. Uh, just one other note, I'm using the ESV translation. Uh, if you haven't got that, please don't worry. Uh, the NIV, the NASB, whatever you're using is, is very similar, but you might just find the phrasing that I'm using a little bit different. Don't let that throw you too much. All right? Good. Let's pray. 
our Heavenly Father, as we have been considering today, we thank you for this word. And we thank you that by it you make us wise for salvation in your Son as your people. And so I pray that by your Spirit you would strengthen me to teach this word clearly and faithfully. And you would help each and every one of us to receive this word in a manner that does indeed build us up in a right faith in your Son. And we ask these things for his name's sake. Amen. Now, believe it or not, there was a time many, many, many years ago when I worked out at my local gym. It has been, as you can probably tell, a very long time. Of course, that meant there was a first time that I went down to my local gym back in the UK. And that first time, I was about 16 years old. I was young. I was with my friends, and being a typical young man, I was pretty, uh, pretty cocky, pretty full of myself. Uh, we were all geared up and ready to go. And being the proud little 16-year-old that I was, I wanted to show off to my friends this first time down the gym. I wanted to give them the impression that I knew exactly what I was doing. I didn't need anyone to instruct me on how to use any of the complicated gym apparatus when I got down. So we began our first gym workout together on this huge uh, multi-gym system. Looks a bit like that. And of course, it wasn't long before someone came along and asked me, what on earth are you doing? And in my pride, I, I didn't know who this guy was. I got a little bit defensive. And I, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my workout. I'm lifting my weight. I'm being a man. And so the guy said, all right, you show me your manliness. And so I went back to one of these machines. And I carried on working out as I saw fit. Uh, and it soon became apparent that basically I was sitting the wrong way round. I was using my arms when I should have been using my legs. And so the weights were way too heavy for me. I was actually on a thigh lift. I thought I was on an arm lifting machine. And so in my embarrassment, again being defensive, I just blurted out to this stranger, well, who are you? Any Anyway, interrupt us like this. And he responded, well, I'm the gym instructor. Actually, I also own the gym. And if you want to stay in this gym, then you're going to listen to me. How foolish I was in my pride to even fail to recognize the man who was in charge and the one I really needed to listen to in order to work out properly. Tonight, as we begin uh, these verses in John, as we're going to be looking at them, we're, we're starting this short series of three uh, encounters that John gives us between Jesus and three very different people. Tonight, we're looking at, in John 3, a religious teacher. Tomorrow, a disreputable outcast. And then later, we'll, uh, the following day, uh, on Wednesday, we'll be looking at a desperate paralytic. And God, through John, has given us these three encounters so that we don't make the far greater mistake of failing to recognize who Jesus really is. And so failing to respond to him appropriately. In fact, that purpose is actually at the heart of what John is writing in the whole of his gospel. You see what he writes later. 
as a summary statement about why he's writing for us, his readers, in John 20, 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has written this account for us that we might know who Jesus really is on the basis of his works, his words, what John refers to as his signs, the very things that reveal him to be who he is, the Christ, God's saviour and king for us. But more than that, John wants us to see who Jesus is clearly so that we might believe on his name. And in doing so, we might know life. This is a far more serious situation than my first embarrassing visit to the gym. John says that what we do with Jesus will determine if we know life or not. And so with that in mind, let's look at our first encounter tonight between Jesus and a religious man in Nicodemus. Before we get to Nicodemus himself, I just want you to notice how John introduces this first encounter at the end of chapter 2. Come with me to chapter 2. Actually, I'll put it on the screen as well. And we read in verse 23, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, and if you, actually, if we've read since John 1 up to this point, we would know he has done incredible signs by this point. Jesus has turned water into wine. That's just one example. And many, seeing that, have sought to follow Jesus as a result to, as it were, as John puts it, believe on his name. But then see what John tells us next in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, as only he could, could see the hearts of these would-be followers. He knew that really they were only interested in the signs that they could see. You know, a guy who turns water into wine, who heals the sick with a word, that is a guy worth having as a friend they think. But none of them had any interest in following Jesus as the Christ, as king. And so Jesus, knowing that, will not receive them. He can see their pride, the pride of their hearts that prevents them from receiving him rightly as their king, found in the heart of man. And now straight into chapter 3, see what John does? I'm going to read from my translation, chapter 3, verse 1. And he writes, literally, now there was a man. John is about to give us an example of a man in which we see far more clearly the problem of pride that prevents us from receiving Jesus for who he really is. And we have that man in Nicodemus. Let's see what John says about him at the beginning of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler 
of the Jews. That brings us on to a teacher from God. Now, Nicodemus, he was not, as we're being told here, just any ordinary Jew of Jesus' day. He was, we're told, a Pharisee. So that means he was a respected interpreter and teacher of God's law for his people in Jesus' day. But he wasn't even just a teacher of God's law. We're also told he was a ruler of the Jews. Uh, Nicodemus belonged to the council known as the Sanhedrin. All right, the high Jewish council. So this guy in Jesus' day was for the Jews both a religious and a political heavyweight. The general consensus for them would have been if anyone, if anyone is going to get to heaven, it's someone like this guy. It's a Nicodemus. Now the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees up to this point, uh, the one that Nicodemus belongs to, they haven't exactly given Jesus a warm reception so far. So when, when John the Baptist first turned up back in John 1, as he started calling people to repent and baptizing them in the River Jordan, uh, the Jews, which John constantly interchanges the Jews, the Pharisees, well, the Jews immediately sent envoys to find out, by what authority are you doing all these things, John? And as John expressed faith in Christ, in Jesus, and pointed to him, well, ever since then, Jesus has not been popular with this group, with the religious teachers of his day. This new teacher and miracle worker is on the scene, and he's winning many, uh, many of their previous followers over to himself. The guys who used to hang on their every word, and so Jesus is a menace in their eyes. And we see that increasingly as we work through John. He is a threat to their reputations, to the glory that they enjoy receiving from man. And so Nicodemus, he's curious about this Jesus who's causing such an upstir for the religious establishment, but he's not a favored figure, this Jesus. So he approaches him by secret, or as John puts it, by night. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So John's first told us this man, Nicodemus' credentials, okay, Pharisee, ruler of the Jews. But now in this opening statement, Nicodemus' first words to Jesus, we're seeing something of his convictions. Notice how he addresses Jesus. He starts by calling Jesus rabbi. Okay, it literally means teacher. Now that was a pretty respectable title for Nicodemus to use back in that day. It wasn't a small thing to be called a teacher by another revered teacher for God's people. And yet then again, we've got to think as John has presented Jesus, Nicodemus isn't meeting just any mere man, is he? In fact, Nicodemus himself, here he, he admits that he's seen the incredible signs that uh, Jesus has been doing, signs that really only God can do. But he insists on referring to Jesus as a fellow revered teacher. Nothing more. In one sense, that's a bit like referring to Donald Trump as a mere government servant, or, or to Lee Chong Wei as a part-time badminton coach. Both those statements are technically, they're true, right? 
but they really don't do justice to those men. Donald Trump is not just any government servant, he's the President of the United States. Lee Chong Wei is not just any badminton coach, he was world number one. But Nicodemus approaches Jesus and infers we're kind of on the same level, aren't we? When Jesus has still shown signs that Nicodemus has seen to indicate he's much more than just a mere rabbi. And so Jesus lovingly begins to show Nicodemus with that opening statement how deep his ignorance really goes, how little he really sees of the spiritual matters he likes to think he knows so much about. We come to seeing God means being born again. So Nicodemus has just claimed that he and his contemporaries, they they have a really keen insight into Jesus' identity. We, We know that you are a teacher from God. And Jesus turns the tables on him straight away. Verse 3 comes out. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus has just claimed that he can see God working somehow in Jesus. He's, He's raising up a new teacher for the people. And now what does Jesus do? He challenges Nicodemus. Oh, didn't you know, unless you've been born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. Which is another way of saying, you won't even see heaven. Jesus is poking an area that Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, felt very strongly about. It was his job to teach God's people about the very kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking of here. To encourage the fellow Jews of his day to be faithful in preparing for that kingdom to come. And as a Pharisee, his conviction would have been uh, well known that, you know, to get into that kingdom, God's kingdom to come, well, that, uh, to get into heaven, you've got to just work really hard and have a meticulous obedience to God's law. And not just God's law, but all the other traditions and other things that we as Pharisees have added on to apply and to burden God's people, all the, all the little intricate details on top of God's law as well. You try and keep both the commandments and all of the other rules that we've made up on the basis of those commandments, and if you do well, you'll get there. You'll get to heaven. Jesus has just looked Nicodemus in the eye and said something very different. Unless you've been born again, you won't see that kingdom at all. Unless you've received a new birth, or it can be written a birth from above. The the point is the same, whether it's a new birth, a birth from above. It's something that we cannot achieve ourselves. You won't see the kingdom, says Jesus. And Nicodemus is shocked. Verse 4. See how he responds. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And it reeks of both disbelief and cynicism at what Jesus has just said. How can you be born again, Jesus? How can a man get back into his mother's womb and, and wait a second time to be delivered a grown man? It's a disgusting idea, isn't it? It just serves to show Nicodemus his ignorance, his lack of faith and understanding. 
His lack of conviction that salvation is first and foremost from God and it's never achieved on its own merit by what we do. Jesus is chipping away at the very foundation that this guy has been building on to be secure with God. To be a member of that kingdom to come. And he doesn't stop. See verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So first we had Jesus' insistence, you must be born again. And now he's clarified what he means for Nicodemus' sake. It's not a second physical birth, but it's a birth of water and the spirit. Now what does that mean? There are a number of theories commonly found in the commentaries that you'll pick up, and some of them, I think, fall into the traps that we're trying to learn to avoid when handling the Bible faithfully here in NextGen. So let me just share with you a couple of the theories that I think uh, go astray from a right understanding. The first popular one, that Jesus, by speaking of uh, a birth of water and the Spirit, it's speaking about a natural birth. That's the birth of the water. And then a spiritual birth, a birth of the spirit. All right? So two separate births, physical birth, we've been born, and then spiritual birth, we're we're reborn. And those who put forward this view, well, they kind of rely on the idea, it's it's a very commonly accepted modern day expression. You ever heard of the thing, oh, her waters are about to break? Do we know what that means? Yeah, her water's about to break. It basically means she's about to have a baby. She's about to deliver. All right, so they go, oh, okay, uh, water, birth, it, it must mean it's, 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 it's the water birth is, is a physical birth. And what are they doing? They're taking a very commonly modern day understanding of how we use the terms of water in relation to birth, and they are then reading that into John. When actually there is little, if any, evidence that the Jews associated water with physical birth in their day. All right? So that's one, one interpretation I think goes a bit astray. Here's one more. A second popular view is, is that Jesus is talking about water baptism here. All right? So he's talking about, they say, oh, the, 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 the water birth is to be baptized in water, and then we wait later for a second birth in the Spirit somehow. And, you know, they think, oh, look, you know, we've just had... John baptizing uh, guys in the River Jordan back in chapter 1. And later Jesus is going to command his disciples to to baptize others with water in his name. So is that what he means by being born of water? You get baptized in water and then you get baptized in the Spirit later. Well, that idea doesn't read modern ideas into the text like the last one. But it does undermine the whole testimony of Scripture. Particularly the message of salvation. That we are saved by grace alone. Remember what Jesus is saying here? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we are talking about a birth of water so necessary that without it, we have no hope of heaven. Now, baptism is important. Don't get me wrong. All right? It's commanded by our Lord, and it's something that we as his followers should partake in in obedience. And I know that that might be a trial for some of us here tonight. Okay, But we've got to bear in mind, water baptism is an important command from the Lord. But the minute, the minute we make any matter of Christian obedience a grounds for our very entry into heaven, 
the very means by which we will be declared acceptable before God and welcomed into his presence and his eternal rest, the minute we look to something we do to make that possible, we have undermined the gospel of grace. The gospel that testifies, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Christ shed his precious blood to deal with our every disobedience so that it can never keep us from the kingdom as so as we trust on him. And so friends, we must never teach any part, any verse in God's word in a way that clearly undermines the gospel of Christ that scripture upholds. We are saved through faith alone in Christ. So Jesus isn't speaking of water baptism here as a work that merits our entry into heaven either. To understand what he's saying here, we just have to look back to the scriptures that Jesus used himself. What he had, the Old Testament. And when we look for this combination of water and spirit and newness of life, we very quickly stumble upon the prophet Ezekiel. As he speaks to God's people, enduring exile for their sins. You know, God had been patient with them generation after generation. He'd he'd called them to live faithfully under the covenant. He had made with them to, to live by his law that they might know blessing with him as their God, their redeemer, their provider in all things. But Israel, as we know from the Old Testament story, they constantly went astray. And so eventually the curses that God promised did before them. But even as they endured the penalty of exile for their sin, God in his grace gives them this wonderful promise for Ezekiel, this promise of restoration. The day would come when he would restore them in the most spectacular way. And you see how Ezekiel describes it? The Lord speaks, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And this is what they needed and this is what God promised. This new birth that Jesus speaks of here. Not two separate births, but one. Described as being born of both water and the Spirit in the light of what we read here. It's a spectacular inner transformation. God granting His Spirit to bring us new life with Him. One in which, as we read in Ezekiel, that will cause God's people no longer to just continue living in the sins he had saved them from, but rather desire him from the heart. Live with him as their God. Desire him rather than idols that led them astray. Well, Jesus makes it clear. We are either in one camp or the other. Have a look in chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And the flesh here refers to our physical birth. And more than that, it also infers what came with that physical birth from the day that we were born. We were born into the corruption of sin. We were born with wayward hearts inclined not to love God as we should, but to go anywhere but Him. 
to seek our security and our satisfaction and our significance away from the God who made us for his glory. And if that is the only birth that we've experienced, that we've known, this physical birth into this world and nothing more, then that is where Jesus says we still are. In our sins. And that there is nothing that we can do in our own strength to remove us from that situation of sin. Jesus will say later in John 8.34, those taking notes, John 8.34, He who sins is a slave to sin. As we bring ourselves, commit sin, so we are enslaved by it. We have a sinful nature. And we cannot change our nature in and of our own power. So our only hope for life with God is a new life, granted by him a totally fresh start. A new birth that we might be new, acceptable before God. Given a new heart that actually desires to know and love him as he should, having been cleansed from all our sins. Jesus says to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And just emphasize that this new birth by the Spirit is something that we we need, but we cannot achieve in our own merits. See how Jesus describes it in verse 8. He gives us this illustration. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Well, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Jesus is deliberately playing on words here because the Greek word for wind and spirit is the same, pneuma. Just as we have no control over the wind, well, so the spirit is outside of our control and works according to his will. And so we are totally dependent on God for this new life with him, away from sin. Nothing that we do to warrant it. And Nicodemus is struggling to take that on board. Brings us to our next point. Jesus knows better than religion. See in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, he's in bewilderment, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus has been found seriously wanting as a teacher for God's people, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He he could no doubt recite them better than anyone in this room tonight, and yet he had still missed its most fundamental lesson for God's people. That to know life with God is a matter of depending on Him for a salvation to come, a fresh start. For a cleansing to come, being washed of our sins that we cannot save ourselves from, being born again of His Spirit that we might love Him from the heart. How embarrassing for Nicodemus, this revered teacher of the law, totally blind to God's truth that Jesus is sharing with him here. He, he refuses to believe Jesus' testimony. You notice how Jesus suddenly uses the plural here. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. It's very much like Nicodemus earlier in verse 3. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. We Pharisees, we religious law keepers, we know that you're a mere teacher, Jesus. But Jesus' testimony 
isn't enforced by mere men. So when he says, but we know and bear witness to what we have seen, he's speaking about the witness he shares with God, his own father, who, who sent him, as we, read in, as we would read in John 1, as light into our world, otherwise in darkness. Jesus is the living word. He is the very essence of truth as God has revealed it. And yet Nicodemus, this teacher of God's people, can't accept these words. And so Jesus continues, verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus, he's failed to believe what's already been made known, what I think he refers to as these earthly things, what's already been quite clearly made known in the Old Testament, in places like Ezekiel. And so given that, Jesus knows it's going to be so much harder for him to accept what he alone can reveal as, verse 13, the Son of Man. Again, Jesus is recalling in a way the Old Testament. Daniel 7, where Daniel sees one like a Son of Man approaching God. And receiving from him all authority to establish his kingdom, his promised kingdom forever. And it's that son of man. He is the only one having, as it were, gone into the heavens who can then descend and so speak God's word and establish his kingdom with authority. Speak a new word. And here Jesus clearly alludes to himself. As the one who alone has descended from the father's side. God's son come to dwell with us. But as the Son of Man, Jesus makes clear, he's more than just a messenger. He not only reveals God's plan of salvation to men like Nicodemus, he is God's plan of salvation for men like Nicodemus. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, Jesus points Nicodemus back to the scriptures that he supposedly knows so well, this time Numbers 21. He, he recalls how God saved his people from a judgment they deserved for their stubborn sin. He, he had sent poisonous snakes into their camp for refusing to honor God as Lord that had saved them. And yet in his mercy, he commands Moses to make this bronze serpent and to raise it up in the middle of the camp. That everyone who might just look on the bronze snake would live. And Jesus takes that image and he applies it to himself. Verse 14, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's the first of three times in John where Jesus refers to himself as being lifted up. And here's the last reference quickly in John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Ultimately, when Jesus speaks of being lifted up, he is referring to the climax of his mission that will end in his death, through which he will ultimately be exalted as God's king, having died and so then be raised. It is his death 
that will make all the difference. Believing on him who will die. And here he tells Nicodemus, you want to see heaven? You want to enter into God's kingdom? You want to know eternal life? It is a matter of believing on the king whom God will raise up. He is our hope to see God's kingdom. He is our hope to be born again, having been cleansed of every sin by his blood. Our only hope to believe on Jesus. And that is exactly where John goes in verse 16 onwards. He makes this simple point. Faith saves, but we belong to darkness. And we're just going to take a brief look at these closing verses. Time's getting on. Well, firstly, John reaffirms what Jesus has already made clear. In this verse that I imagine the majority of us could recite, it's the most commonly known, popular verse in all the world, John 3.16. We're a bit sleepy? Let's all say it together. All right? Try not to look at your Bible if you know it by heart, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believe on him not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, we're using different trailers. That's fine. Yeah, good. But I hope we're a bit more awake. Now remember how Nicodemus had addressed Jesus. Rabbi, you're a teacher. Come from God. As if that's what we need. We just need another teacher like Nicodemus. We, we just need someone who can, who can instruct us better in how to keep God's word. No. God didn't give us a mere teacher. He gave us his one and only begotten son. Not merely to teach us about what God is like or what God actually desires in terms of worship from the heart, but to actually save us back to God that we might not perish away from him. And yet, sadly again, as we saw, Nicodemus refused to believe it. And John gives us some insight here into why. What's going on under the surface in hearts like those of Nicodemus? Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Here we see the real issue for deeply religious and proud men like Nicodemus, who who trust in their obedience to God's law to see them through, who rely on it's me and what I do and that will get me into heaven. When the light of God's Son and His testimony shines on our hearts, it exposes them for what they are really like deep down. Wicked. That we are sinful to the core. That no matter how good men like Nicodemus might seem in public or any of one of us, that in and of ourselves, in our hearts, we constantly fall short of God's standard of holiness. Not in simply what we do, but in the reasons, the deepest thoughts and inclinations and motivations for which we do them. Nicodemus, he seemed like a good man. He was a respectable man. To so many, God could see his pride. 
the hubris that kept him from actually receiving his saviour in Christ as he should have as king. The pride, you are a teacher like me, Jesus. A righteous man meeting another righteous man from God. And Jesus exposes Nicodemus' real need. He goes that much deeper to the heart. A heart that needed to be washed and cleansed and renewed as only the Spirit could do through faith in the Son. A heart that didn't need to depend on skin-deep works that can hide the worst of motivations, but on Jesus, who alone paid for all our sins in full and said, It is finished. Our every sin cleansed by his blood, our every need met in his love. And thankfully, John ends on a positive note in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And thankfully, I believe we can count Nicodemus as one of those men now. We see him later in John's Gospel acknowledging and serving Jesus as king in his death as he was one who helped to secure the body and prepare it for burial. I think that's a sign of faith. But John's challenge now remains for all his readers, including us. That only those who do what is true, who are willing to come into the light, who are willing to have their sin exposed, seen up for what it really is, and so depend entirely on Jesus, those are the ones that God has worked by his Spirit to truly save to himself. Those are the ones whom God has brought to faith in his Son. Well, firstly, let's apply this to ourselves. Nicodemus was a man of good reputation. He was a man in authority. He was a trusted teacher for God's people. He was blind to his most fundamental need to be born again through faith in the Messiah. His religious credentials and his revered reputation, they kept him from taking Jesus seriously as his only hope to see heaven. What about us tonight? You know, we might think on the inside, look, we, we are we're leaders. We've been going to church longer than we can even remember. We're leading Bible studies. We're running youth groups. We're fine, right? We're safe. We're secure. Look at everything we're doing. We're going to heaven. And yet, friends, if our focus is fixed on those things, if those are the things we are looking to for security and assurance that God's going to accept me, then we are no less foolish than Nicodemus here. Worldly religion today says in order to see heaven, you must, and you can summarize it in a word of two letters, D and O, do. You must do. Do, 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 and you'll get there. Christ alone gives us a different word. Four letters. D-O-N-E, done. It is done. In order to see heaven, you must rely on what has been done, not on anything that we do. Our only hope before God, our only hope to know eternal life in His kingdom is to be born again through faith in the Son.
Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf. Do you have that phrase here in Malaysia, turning over a new leaf? It's like I've, I've come to my New Year's resolutions and now I'm going I'm to get everything right and in my strength I'm going to put my life right. Not, no. Christianity is not about trying to be a better person. It's about starting a new life, having received a rescue we don't deserve in full. Is that true for you tonight? When you see sin in your life as a Christian, professing Christ as Lord, is He the one that you look to for forgiveness and hope and assurance of? I had one wise friend who once told me, and it was so helpful. I was talking about a sin that I've been struggling with for some time. And he was concerned I was losing sight because of that battle with sin. I was losing sight of the fact that I am right by the grace of God. Trust on Christ. And so he said, Tim, every time you see your sin, you look ten times at the cross. Every time. And that is the means by which God has saved us and will transform us. When you succeed as a Christian, is Jesus the one that you look to in thanksgiving and praise? Or do you get proud? Look at what I've done. Do you know from start to finish that your hope before God is truly and only in Christ who died to set you free? I recently heard one preacher say to me and to others, there are many people in hell who can recite John 3.16. There are many people in hell who can recite John 3.16. Don't be one of them. Well, now let's apply this to those whom we serve. Put this very simply. Never, ever, ever, ever assume the gospel. Never, ever, ever assume the gospel. When you meet with a new member in your youth group, your first priority is to work out to the best of your ability, does this individual know and believe the gospel of grace? Is their security for life with God now and forevermore rooted entirely in Jesus and his finished work? It doesn't matter what church they came from or how well they can recite the scriptures to you or how willing they are to serve. Nicodemus came from the right religious circles. He knew the Bible better than anyone in this room in terms of the Old Testament. He was blind to his greatest spiritual need to know life with God by the Spirit through nothing but faith in his son. We always have to start there. If you assume the gospel of grace, one coming into your care, and you simply assume and pass over that, you just trust, they know it, they believe it, they they know their sins are forgiven in Christ, and it's on him that they're relying, then as you promote them in godliness, as you promote them to delight in God's will, and to turn away from sin, and to serve the kingdom, what you're effectively going to be doing, in the case that they don't actually believe the gospel, well, it's as effective as trying to get a corpse to stand up and walk. That's what you're doing. Trying to command someone who is not born again in Christ to know and love God and serve his people. Hear Jesus' words. 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God apart from the Spirit, shown through faith in the Son. We are spiritually dead. So pray. Pray for those under your care whom you seek to serve, that they would continue to trust on Christ alone. And in terms of your ministry to them, don't move past that wonderful gospel of grace until you know that they are clear and believing on Christ as Savior and King. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder in this first encounter that we see between Jesus and Nicodemus. It exposes our need for him. That our meager attempts to be good in and of ourselves is a hopeless and futile task. That we need to receive your grace. We need to be made alive through faith in your Son in order to have a hope of being with him in his eternal rest and so serving and rejoicing in him faithfully now. I pray for each of us tonight you would help us to reflect on these things carefully both for ourselves and for the sake of those whom we serve. Commit ourselves into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.